0: Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called Onward, a study in the book of Acts. Together, we're learning how to live as an ordinary people empowered to continue Jesus' mission. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everybody. I seem to have gotten the cold that all of Springfield has gotten, so my voice will not be as silky smooth as usual, but we will make it through. This week, I was reminded of an old Peanuts cartoon where Linus is sitting in his family room watching TV and he's holding the remote and Lucy comes in and demands the remote from him. And he says, why should I give you the remote? And she says, because of these five fingers right here. (laughs) Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they are a power to behold. And he looks at his hand and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? Now the reason I'm sharing that, because this morning as we continue our series in the New Testament book of Acts called Onward, the passage we're going to look at together is a wonderful example of what can happen in a church when we are united together with a common purpose. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, similar to Lucy's fist, we can be a power to behold. And yet I have to tell you that this passage also reveals to us that we have an enemy Who hates it when God's people are one in spirit, and he's gonna do everything he can in order to destroy it. So basically, I just wanna look at two things with you today. First, what does it look like when a church is filled with the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Holy Spirit? And then second, how can we be on guard against a powerful enemy who wants to destroy that? Or if you're on your notes with me, we can either be led by the Holy Spirit's power or led astray by the enemy. And we want to make sure here that we remain the church Jesus wants us to be. So let me invite you to take your Bible, if you brought it with you, turn it to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. If you don't have a Bible, we always have some black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. And you can find this on page 886 of those black Bibles. And again, feel free to take a Bible home. We'd love to give that to you as a gift if you don't have one. Now, if you were here last week, Brian did an awesome job showing us that prayer was a top priority for the early church. It was sort of like the engine that drove these ordinary people to be empowered by Jesus to continue Jesus' mission. And we looked at their prayer together, but what I want to remind us of is what happened after they prayed together. We read this in verse 31 of chapter 4. You can look up on the screen. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So with that, Luke now is going to go on and show us what does it look like when a church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Would you look at verses 32 through 37 with me? In fact, read verse 32 out loud on your notes there. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So right here, I noticed four things, four evidences that will arise in a church when it is filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's walk through those. The first thing I noticed is unity unity. We see that in verse 32 when it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. And the idea behind that is not only were they sharing deep fellowship with one another, or friendship, if you will, they were also sharing passion and purpose for the mission of the church. They were united together in mind about who Jesus was, and they were united in heart about the mission he had given them as his people in this world. Now, this is so awesome to picture what's going on here, isn't it? A whole bunch of people from a whole bunch of different places and backgrounds becoming one. There is unity in this church. Now, to be clear, I want to cause up some common confusion about this. Again, if you're on your notes, unity is not uniformity, where everybody is exactly the same. I think sometimes we think that's what it is when we think about unity, but the believers didn't see everything eye to eye. It's wrong to suppose, as some sadly do at times, that with unity we'll all carry the same Bibles, we'll all read the same books, we'll all wear the same clothes, we'll all educate our children in the same way, we all have the same likes and dislikes. We know that's just not true. We're not supposed to become Christian clones. The fact is, I would argue that the insistence on uniformity is one of the most disunifying things a church could do. Perhaps you've heard phrases like, us four and no more. What does that provide? It provides a judgmental attitude where it's only us, the ones who are like me, and nobody else is welcome. That's uniformity, and that is not what Jesus is after in the church. One of the wonders of his church is that he honors individuality while bringing us together in unity. I think of it like a snowflake, right? Snowflakes are individual, they're all unique, and yet when they come together, they create this beautiful, remarkable thing. The church is its most beautiful when different races, ages, men, women, young, old, white, black, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, independent, can all gather together in unity of faith and unity of purpose. Paul wrote about this in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christianity is not about uniformity where everybody's the same. It's about unity. There are some things, I will just say, that we must all agree on. We call these the majors of our faith. But then there are also things Secondary issues that sometimes get into the church and begin to ruin it. We must hold true to those first primary issues, but we can still disagree on some of those secondary issues. I had an experience like this when I was in seminary. I actually served at a church, an Assemblies of God church, and I disagreed with some of the secondary issues that were going on there. However, it was one of the greatest experiences of unity I've ever had. Where we could still respect one another and love one another and yet have honest conversations about what we believe. We still agreed on what was most important. And that's the dream God has for his church. The second thing I noticed, an evidence of a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit I see here, is power and grace for effective witness. Power and grace for effective witness. We read that in verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. We talked about this before. The word great power comes from the Greek word dynamis, which we get the word what? Dynamite. This church was dynamite. They were receiving incredible power from the Holy Spirit to do what? to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Over and over again, they're speaking this pretty simple message. Jesus was God who came in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He raised again to life for our salvation. He ascended into heaven right now, where he is still today in power and authority, and he has sent his Holy Spirit on us, his church So that we can continue his mission in this world, his mission of making disciples. Even though they are ordinary people, this church is being empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue his mission. Now listen, I just want to say, when a church is truly filled with the Holy Spirit, they can't stop talking about Jesus to others. This does not become like a Few people who have the gift of evangelism are doing that. It's this idea that everybody in the church sees their everyday, ordinary, boring lives as the primary place where God is at work and we join him trusting he will provide us with the power and the grace we need to share this incredible message with others. He will provide when we lean in, when we trust that this message, as simple as it is, is still the most powerful message in the world today. A third evidence of a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit is generosity. I mean, you can't read this text without seeing this over and over again, right? Verse 32, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 34, there were no more needy persons among them. We see examples of people selling pieces of property and then donating that to meet the needs of people in their church. We're given the name Barnabas. He becomes an important figure later on in the book of Acts. A spirit-filled church, if you're on your notes there, makes sure that everyone in the community has enough for everyday needs. You see, when the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, giving becomes a blessing, not a burden. Amen? What believers did in this chapter here is purely voluntary. They weren't compelled to do this by any outside force. They did it because they loved one another. They were unified with one another. No doubt what was happening here is many of the new believers had come from somewhere else in the country. They came to celebrate perhaps a Jewish feast and they wanted to stay. They wanted to grow. They wanted to learn and so the early church took care of them while they were away from their homeland. One of the evidences, I will just tell you right now, that a person has met Jesus and has been filled with the Holy Spirit, is you will have a transition on your view of money and possessions. You will have a transition from I own these things to I steward these things. As we grow and mature more and more in our faith, we realize more and more just how incredibly generous God has been to us. And so we want to reflect that, don't we? We want to mirror that. We want to give God glory by pouring out his generosity to us, to other people. Now, I just have to say to you, this can only be a Holy Spirit thing, in my opinion. Because all of us, when we're born, what is one of the first words we say? Mine. Mine. And it's natural for us to think, mine. I own this. It's mine. It's supernatural to think, others. Give generous. I heard a story from another pastor I thought was worth sharing. He said, I was having a conversation not long ago with a a new Christian. And every time a new Christian finds out you're a pastor, you're like, okay, I got some questions for you. And you're like, okay, here we go. His question was, what's this whole tithing thing? And essentially his question is, why does God get 10% of my money? And he, this pastor said, well, let's look at it another way. Why do you get 90% of his money? That's a very different way to look at it. If God came to you right now and says, I own everything in the world, and guess what? I'm going to share some of it with you. We're going to do this split thing. And you're like, okay, what percentage do I get of that? You get 90% of that. You'd say what? That's a great deal. I mean, can you imagine if the government did that? It's a way better deal than the government. Flat tax, 10%. That covers Social Security, FICA, all the other things. Property tax. We'd be like dancing in the aisles right now. And that just shows us how generous God really is. That's a stewardship mentality versus an ownership mentality. Now look, this passage, as some have argued, isn't teaching some idealized form of communism. We all give everything that we have in order to create this socialist society within the church. We're going to see later, in fact, in the next section, that private property was never frowned upon. Mary owned a home, Peter owned a home. Verse 34 simply indicates that from time to time when a person was led by the Holy Spirit, they met the needs of others in their church family. I have experienced this very thing in this church. When Peggy and I moved here 17 and a half years ago, we were dirt poor seminary students. We owned one car that was on its last legs and someone in this church was led by the Holy Spirit to give us a car to use. I know countless stories of that happening within our church family where individuals know of a need and they give generously, readily. I think about a church like ours giving 20% of everything we take in to missions. I think of individuals supporting people like Luke Erickson and other missionaries around the world. I think of our benevolence offering that we take after every communion Sunday and how we, too, are able to meet the needs of those in our church family who are going through a time of crisis. I think about the special offering we just took in December where we gave over $200,000 to both Refuge Ranch here in our local community and to Ethiopia where they're building wells and planting churches. I can't get over how generous you are, Cherry Hills. That is an evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Now the last thing I noticed here about what happens when a church is filled with the Holy Spirit, I almost didn't include this, But I found it interesting because as I've examined the different churches I've been a part of, I have found this to be true. If you're following on your notes, when the Holy Spirit fills a church, there is trust in the leadership. There's trust in the leadership. Now, where do I get this? Well, I get it from verses 35 and 37 where it says, people were laying their generous gifts where? Not a trick question. At the apostles' feet. Now, this is a little crazy to me, right? I don't know about you. But let's just say Barnabas makes like 500,000 denarii or whatever they used back then for selling his property. And then he brings it to the church and he brings it right up front and he lays it right at Peter's feet. Not a trick question. That's in front of everybody, right? It's in front of all the apostles. Now imagine if I said to you right now, okay, we're going to collect our tithes and offerings. Just bring them down front and lay them right here at my feet. You would probably leave the church right now, rightfully so. But what does this illustrate for us? How much trust did they have in leadership here? This is high trust. Now I got to say, in my experience, in my life, I've been a part of probably over 50 churches because my dad was an intern pastor when I was growing up. And I would just say, this is definitely one of the marks of a healthy church. If a church is unhealthy, you can almost go back to there's a distrust between the congregation and the leadership. But when a church is healthy, there's this mutual trust that exists between one another. And let me just say this, we sure hope that we continue to earn that kind of trust from you. It's one of the reasons we do an external audit every year as a church family. It's one of the reasons we make our financials known to you. It's one of the reasons we do Q&As like we're going to do at the 11 o'clock service. We want to be as transparent as we can possibly be because we know the only way for us to remain a healthy church is by trusting one another in these things. And so those are the evidences we see of a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. There's other things, of course, like prayer, as we learned last week. And I really wish that I could end this message right here. I'm sure you do as well. But unfortunately, unfortunately, this isn't all good news. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. It should start this way. But a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Now listen, my guess is that Ananias and Sapphira were a part of this church, that they were believers in Jesus. And they had just witnessed Barnabas do this incredible act of generosity. And so they decide, maybe at first with great motives, we should do the same thing. They probably then started thinking, I wish people were praising us like they were praising Barnabas. How cool would it for us to get a cool nickname like Couple of Encouragement? I would like my friends to think of me as a generous person like that. And so they decide to sell a piece of their property and do the same thing. But sadly, as we read here, we find that they're not at all like Barnabas. Outwardly, they sure seem to be. But inwardly, they are quite a different character. They sold their property. They looked at the money, said, oh, this money's kind of nice. We could do some things with this. And so they keep it back for themselves while giving some of it to the church. But here's the key while pretending to give all of it to the church. So we pick up the story in verse 3. Would you read that out loud with me on your notes? Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? I'll keep going. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Notice, he gives her an opportunity to repent, to come clean. Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Now, I think you probably agree this is one of the hardest stories to understand in the entire New Testament. I mean, it just seems so out of place to me. And so in order for us to unpack it together, we need to understand a few things about this story and then we'll talk a little bit about why this punishment is so severe. And of course, what I want you to see, the first thing we need to understand as we look at these verses together, if you're on your notes, is we have an enemy who is always working to destroy God's church. His name is Satan. Satan. In the section before this, we see a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. It must have been an exciting time. Everybody was on board with the mission. But the enemy, he hates it. He hates it when a church is on fire for God. Two weeks ago, we saw his first approach was to destroy what God was doing by attacking the church from the outside. Maybe you remember, Peter and John are speaking. They're arrested. They're warned. They're beaten. They're flogged. Satan thinks maybe that will deter them from continuing speaking the message. His primary way of stopping the church is through physical persecution. From the outside, this still happens all around the world today with our brothers and sisters. And I will just say to you, though we may not physically be persecuted yet, we are living in a culture that is increasingly becoming hostile to the church, to our beliefs, to our faith. So this may come if it hasn't already for you. But what happens after that story? Are Peter and John and the others discouraged What we learn is they actually rejoice in the honor of suffering with Christ. I'd like to have that attitude someday in my life. And they gather back together with the church. And as we saw last week with Brian, they begin to pray together. And the result is they're filled with the power, the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit to continue to testify to the good news. And so now that has failed. Satan moves on to tactic number two, which is I'm going to attack the church from the inside. I'm going to use people who are a part of the church fellowship to try to tear it apart. Does that ever happen today? So if you're following on your notes, Satan will attack us from the outside and inside. Friends, whatever you believe about Satan, we must understand he is a clever foe. If he doesn't succeed as a devouring lion, 1 Peter 5.8, he will come as a deceiving serpent, Genesis 3. His agents here are a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Notice what Peter says to Ananias in verse 3. Why has Satan so filled your heart? Who is supposed to fill our heart, Cherry Hills? The Holy Spirit. Now don't misunderstand, please, please. Satan is not possessing this couple. They are the ones who are allowing him in. They are responsible for their actions and their decisions. This is simply a picture for us of how all temptation works. Because they submit to Satan's temptation, they are now allowing him to influence them that they take it to such a far extreme that there are dire consequences. I'll talk about that in a minute, but what I hope we see here is this passage is just an important warning for all of us. Listen, if you go through a season in your life where there's this amazing spiritual blessing, if we as a church go through this season where we're just seeing God at work in tremendous ways, we can, you can expect that Satan will attack you. Satan does not want the church of Jesus Christ to thrive at all in unity or in mission together. But listen, if you're going through the motions in your faith, guess what? You're probably safe. Satan's not going to come after you. He's really happy when we're lukewarm in our faith. If a church is not attempting anything important for God, if we're not breaking new ground, if we're not witnessing, if we're not serving in any particular way, hey, he'll probably leave us alone. On the other hand, if a church is breaking new ground, if they're trying to do things for the Lord as they're filled with the Holy Spirit, as we seek unity and oneness and generosity, He will come after us. We are at war every single day. But according to scripture, Satan isn't our only enemy. We're also at war with what the Bible calls our flesh and the world. And this is exactly how sin works. Picture it. Satan comes and he tempts us in our flesh. And we at that moment, nothing's wrong yet. But at that moment, we can either resist his temptation or we can give into it. And what we see and what Peter's talking about here is that when that moment came for Ananias and Sapphira, they gave into it. And so I asked in the study guide this week, what exactly is their sin? And this question is more complicated at first glance than it looks because what it really shows us is how sin works. Sin is like a slippery slope. One sin begats more sin, which begats more sin. But here's what I'd say if I had to answer that question. Here's what I'd say if you're following. Their sin, like all sin... All sin starts with pride. I mean, no doubt, picture the scene, the church is praising God for the generous offering that Barnabas brought. And then Satan whispers to this couple, this happens to all of us, right? You too could have that kind of glory. You too can make others think you are as spiritual as Barnabas. Does that sound at all familiar to you? You ever heard that one? It reminds me a lot of the first temptation in Genesis 3. God knows When you eat from the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I've experienced these same temptations towards my pride, right? What's the big deal about cheating on that test? Don't you want an A? Don't you want to be thought of as smart? Did God really say your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and that you can't use it any way you want? It's always going after our pride, Instead of resisting his temptation here, Ananias and Sapphira yield to him in their pride and their plan, and they plan out their strategy. But like I said, one sin begets another sin, and that leads to their second sin, which is hypocrisy. Listen, this isn't just a miscalculation of their checkbook, right? This is premeditated deception. As one scholar writes, this was pious pretense, religious sham, simulated holiness, Christian fraud. Wow. Wow. Peter explained that Adanias, listen, you didn't have to give anything. Even after you sold the property, who owned the money? He did. Instead of just saying, hey, we're going to give a part of our property, though, filled with hypocrisy, he says, we're giving all of it. Now, before, again, we judge too harshly here, let's all admit, we all like to project certain images of ourselves, don't we? We all want people to think of us in certain ways. I want people to think of me as smart, of having it all together, I want people to think of me as the best-dressed pastor. I want people to think of me as an athlete or as the the funny guy at school. Whatever. We all want to project images of ourselves. But listen, I agree with what George MacDonald once wrote. Listen, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Wow. The name Jesus gave to that is hypocrisy which, if you're on your notes, simply means wearing a mask, playing the actor. And this is something Jesus hated. Now, I think today there's a bit of a misunderstanding of what hypocrisy is and isn't. What is the number one complaint people have outside of the church about the church? We're all a bunch of... Now, I think a lot of times what they simply mean by that is, hey, you say you follow Jesus, but then I see sin in your life. And I would be the first person to say, you sure do. I am a sinner saved by God's grace. Never are we said to be perfect as people. Hypocrisy is deliberate deception. Trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. There's a great story about Teddy Roosevelt, you know, our former president a long time ago where some people came to visit him and interview him and ask him some questions. And he said, okay, I'll I'll let you do that, but I got some work to do out in the barn. You're gonna have to come with me and I'll I'll do my work and you can ask your questions. So he gets out to the barn, he rolls up his sleeves, he gets his pitchfork and he goes to bale the hay and he says, wait, there's no hay here. And he asks his farmhand, where's the hay for me to bale? And this is what he replied. I ain't had time to toss it back down again after you pitched it up while the other folks were here. That is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Putting on a lovely front in order to make themselves look more holy than they are. Jesus had a very strong word about this. He called people like that whitewashed tombs. Looking really nice on the outside, projecting a really good image, but dead on the inside. We share Ananias' sin, not when people think we're more spiritual than we are, but when we try to make other people think we're more spiritual than we are. Examples of hypocrisy today include creating the impression that we are people of prayer when the truth is our prayer life is pretty much nothing. Making it look like we have all together, everything together when we really don't. Prompting the idea that we are generous when we are so tight that we squeak when we smile. How about when a pastor calls his people to holy living but is secretly having an affair with his secretary. Oh, the damage that does to the church. The sad thing about hypocrisy, maybe you've learned this, I don't know if you have yet, but people can see right through it. They can smell it from a mile away, and more importantly, God sees right through it. He sees my heart. And so, so far, what have we seen? Pride leads to more sin, hypocrisy in this case. And now thirdly, their hypocrisy leads to lying both to the church and the Holy Spirit. Again, sin never comes in a single package. It always begets more and more sin. We got to use more sin to cover up our old sin. Jeff likes to quote this. I think this is applicable here. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. In verse 3, and again in verse 9, Peter says, why did you what? Lie. To the Holy Spirit. Then he says in verse 4, You didn't just lie to men, but you lied to God. By the way, side note, this is one of the clearest indications in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. You've lied to God. But the important point that Peter is making here to understand their punishment is you've not only lied to men, You've lied to God himself. He raises this to the highest possible level, affirming that the sin committed by Ananias and Sapphira is of great concern to God because it is a sin against God. Ultimately, of course, all sin is against God. But let me just reshape this because we can get easily sad as we read texts like this. Let me reshape this in a positive way for you. I would put it in positive terms like this. I would say to you, no matter what you do, it matters to God. No matter how you live, it matters to God. How we live matters to God. That's an amazing thing to think about. And the reason for that is we are eternal beings. Now, some people teach today that we're just creatures of this life. We live and then we die, and that's the end of it. And if that's true, to be honest with you, if that's what you believe, then it really does not matter how you live your life today. Go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But if the Bible is true that we are all eternal beings, then listen, the choices you and I make today matter not only for today, but for eternity. I want that kind of hope, not the hope of this is it. And so how I live matters to God. Now, the last question, of course, is why is the consequences of their sin so severe here? The truth is, I don't know the entire answer to this. I really don't. I've thought about this for years in my life, but here are two things I would put out there for you to consider. First, please know that God loves his church and will protect its innocence. God is jealous for his people. He loves his people because his people were purchased by the sacrifice and the blood of God's Son. And now we, his church, the extension of Jesus, are put on this earth to glorify God, to continue Jesus' work. Satan wants to destroy that work. And one of the ways he will do that is he will try to disunite us within our fellowship. He will keep us from witnessing this good news to others. I, I quoted this in the study guide. I thought it was worth sharing with everybody here. I think it's up on the screen for you to follow. If no dire consequences had followed this act of sin, the results among the believers would have been serious when the deceit became known. Not only would dishonesty appear profitable, but the conclusion that the spirit could be deceived would follow. It was important to set the course properly at the outset in order to leave no doubt that God will not tolerate such hypocrisy and deceit. Second, my second thing I would propose, and this is worth noting, is one of the things you might notice in Scripture is that God will judge someone severely in a new era of the church's history or of Israel's history. And so again, if you were doing the study guide, you looked at people like Abab or Nabab and Abihu or who were Aaron's sons, they served as priests and they carried unauthorized fire before the Lord and God strikes them dead. Why? Because that was the beginning of a new era. The tabernacle had just been built. Or you can read about Achan when the Israelites enter into the promised land. He gives them very clear directions on what they're supposed to do and Achan doesn't follow them. And he is put to death by the people there. We don't read about those other things other times, but there's this pattern. This is the beginning of a new era in the church. There hadn't been sin in the church yet. This is the first sin and God puts them to death to remind the church this is a serious matter. This right here is just an exceptional case of judgment because God knows the church could have been derailed at this point. The result of this judgment, we read in verse 11, is this. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I want you to notice we have moved from great power to great grace to great fear. And I think all things need to exist in a church if it's to have a proper view of God. Hebrews 12 reminds us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. Yes. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This passage shows shows us two things. How serious sin is, but I also hope it shows you how amazing God's grace is. Have you ever lied in your life? Raise your hand if you ever lied. Why are you still here? Why hasn't God struck me dead? Because of his kindness and his grace and love. He has sent Jesus so that all people, he's waiting, he's hoping all people will recognize he is the answer for the forgiveness of all sin. Thanks be to God that he gives us victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, as we wrap this section up, uh, I'm just going to share honestly. This prompted me to ask three questions this week, and I'm going to share these with you. And then we're going to have some time at the end for you to reflect, to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. We don't want to just know the word, we want to respond to the word of God. So here's the first question I ask myself Am I giving myself fully to the unity and mission of His church? Whether that's our church or another church you're part of, are you giving yourself fully to the unity and mission of the church? You have to understand if you're a part of this church, your individual conduct plays a huge role in what God can do and will do in our church body. When we're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to see evidences that we see in the text here, right? We're going to see generosity flow. We're going to see all of us seeing our lives as being on mission with God. We're going to see unity together. But my life, my individual life, matters for the whole body, the whole community. So are you giving yourselves fully? This is why we say in our vision, we want to see every generation giving themselves, say it, fully to Jesus and his mission. Because that's the only way we can accomplish what he has for us. Number two, am I truly a person of integrity? I mean, I don't know how you can't read this and ask that question. Am I a person of hypocrisy or am I a person of integrity? Is my profession of my faith backed up by the practice of my faith? The passage shows God knows my heart. I can't hide it from him, even though I can hide it from other people. But I gotta ask, am I practicing spiritual deceit? Do I attempt to make people think I'm more spiritual than I really am? I'm more committed than I really am. Integrity simply means... Easy definition. I am the same person here at church or in my life group than I am at home and school and work. There is no mask. There is no acting. Is that true about you? Now, I, I just would say this as well. I don't know about you, but I'm way more encouraged when I'm around believers who are free to admit their struggles and their sins before me than I am around believers who act like they have everything together. Because you know what that creates? Something we pray for in our church It creates authenticity. It creates realness. I'm not encouraged when I talk to somebody who acts like they have it all together, but you know what? You share your hardships with me. We're about to have some great conversation because we can relate with one another. So when one decides to put on a mask and pretend, listen, we suffer. We suffer as a body. One of the key questions we should ask ourselves almost every day is, what is my motive in doing this? What is my motive in saying this? We can be motivated for good. We can be motivated for bad. Number three, last question. Do I have a right view of who God is? I mean, I just read this passage, and I'm like, do I have a right view of who God is? I want a God sometimes who is all love and grace, only those things, and he is those things, but he is also righteous, just, and he's jealous for his church. We also know that sin will one day be dealt with. All people will be judged. God is a consuming fire, as we read. It's so easy, though. I know you're unfocused. It's so easy to project God into our own image, isn't it? We create a God in our own image, and this is one of the reasons why it's so important to take the full counsel of Scripture, both in our personal time, but also as a church, not picking and choosing different passages, but getting a full view of who God really is. So now you can put away your notes if you haven't already. That's the three of you at least. And like I said, I want to now offer you a time. Because we're not just observers at church. We're participants in what God is doing. I'm going to give you four questions I ask myself every morning in my quiet time. I'll read the Bible. I'll pray. And then at the end, I sit with these four questions. And I tell you nine times out of ten, one of these questions just pops out at me. And so if that happens to you, just focus in on that one question and trust that the Holy Spirit will lead you to do something. This could be a time of confession. This could be a time of action. Whatever it is, just make yourself available to what he might want to do in this time. I'll pray, and then you'll have that chance. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are love and grace and compassion and mercy, that your mercy is new today for us but we also thank you that you are just and righteous, that you are jealous for us. We pray as we look at this passage together this morning that it wouldn't be just in one ear and out the other, but that it would sink deep into our hearts. And so we now use this time and ask for your Holy Spirit to be present. Speak to us and help us to respond in your grace and in your power. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.